Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Kaif Syed. Three years after the nationwide September 2016 prison strikes, abolitionist intellectual H.H. rejoins us on the show. He speaks about what the few months before the prison strikes looked like from inside Michigan's Kinross Prison, and we discuss the tactical advantages of the strike within an abolitionist strategy of disruption. My name is Alejo Stark, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project. Today we speak with H.H., an abolitionist intellectual that last time we spoke with him was in prison at Barragat Maximum Correctional Facility in Michigan. We spoke with him after he was put in solitary confinement for almost a year for his involvement in a 2016 prison strike that took place in the bowels of the Michigan Kinross prison. Today we are overjoyed to say that he joins us here face to face. Welcome back to, to our show. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So really, really overjoyed to have you here talking talking with you face to face. Like I said, you, you've been with, with our show actually since the very beginning. In our second episode, we which was released actually a few months after the, the Kinross prison strike in 2016, we featured a letter that you wrote, which got published in the San Francisco Bayview, in which you wrote, quote, I will try to give you a brief, concise description of the events that precipitated the fall event, meaning the Kinross strike. So can you sort of briefly tell us what precipitated the 2016 prison strike as it was instantiated here in, in Michigan at the Kinross prison? How did you sort of live the months living up to the strike, to the work stoppage, and then from there move on to what happened during September 9 and September 10? Yeah. Well, I guess as far as prison strikes go or, or activist work or abolition uh, movement agenda is concerned, I guess Kim Ross was the perfect storm, I guess, for an uprising. Prior to going to Hiawatha, which is from now the new Kim Ross, uh, we were all uprooted, 1,200 inmates from one prison in mass and moved them to another smaller prison that wasn't ready for them as far as condition. So in that regard, to fuel a, a uprising, <laughs> created the perfect storm for it or the perfect platform to be able to do it. When we got there, there was the ventilation was bold. As you've heard from recent, I mean, prior accounts, people got sick just as soon as they turned on the ventilation system. Uh, people went to the hospital and was discovered to got abscesses on their lungs after being there four days from breathing through the ventilation. There were not enough blankets. The heat didn't work. No curtains. Plumbing was messed up. So, Living-wise, Hiawatha was, wasn't prepared for us. Also, the food situation at the time. Airmark Trinity did a whole transition from privatized food to state food. What's going on? Uh, we were getting fed inadequate meals. Well, it's privatized, capitalistic, motivated. So you know that uh, they were trying to save money. To save money, they can't give us more. They had to give us less. And they gave us less. Uh, uh, less. It didn't meet caloric or nutritional standards. But... Yet and still, they still gave it to us. Then some of the rules that were going on as far as visits, uh, you had to sit across from your visit when by policy you could sit next to your visit, you can hug. At this facility specifically, they weren't allowing that to happen. So we planned our first uprising. Our first uprising was actually a mass stand-in just to show that we were upset. And when they seen us do well, what, what it consisted of was all the inmates came out and stood in front of the unit at a set time. Nobody spoke, nobody said anything, and at a set time, we left together, showing that we were unified and that we were upset. We wanted to send a clear and concise message, there's something going on with the inmates and you need to figure it out. And we all unified in it about four months before this, which got the desired result. They called us up, said they were going to make changes and everything, they were going to work everything out. Uh, long story short, they didn't, which was another log in the fire <laughs> for the 9-9 incident. So when we finally heard about the national movement plan 
the work stoppage. It fit perfectly with what we were already trying to do. So we got involved in that. As you know, on 9-9, we all decided nobody goes to work. We did it on 9-10 in angry response from all sides. Another protest occurred, protest us, another stand-in, where it was really a walk-around area that we weren't supposed to be at, uh, but we were up in the ante, and I guess they up up the ante on their anger, too. And it escalated into the 9-10 incident. So let's maybe just, you know, you're describing this as a perfect storm. Kinross was a perfect storm, right, is, is the, the word you used. So it's really sort of confluence between local conditions, right, in this prison that was reopened. Mm-hmm. We kind of tell the story in our documentary, Specters of Attica, Reflections from Inside Michigan Prison Strikes, which people can listen, in which you and other folks inside kind of give us this view that there's these local conditions, air ducts, uh, you know, family visitation, but also food, right, privatization food, as you're saying, but also wages, right, which is a central part of the prison strike. Right. So there's sort of this local conditions, which in many ways are sparked by the 2008 crisis, budget crisis, right? right. This prison is closed and reopened. Right. It reopened in shoddy conditions. And you'll have to face this 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 conditions immediately as you moved in in 2015, right? So there's sort of conflicts between local and nationwide demands, right. Right. one of which is wages, right? Uh, right? You say in the letter that I mentioned earlier, Kinross created a united mindset to send against, finally, against uh, these conditions, right? Yes. So what is it specifically about wages and this aspect of it that, uh, that really made this conference work? To me, the wage situation is the most important situation out of all of them. While I'm not for prison reform, right, just general fairness, wages, being, wages in the 40 years in the Michigan penal system, maybe 50 years now, in the Michigan penal system have not changed. I have a institutional pay wages and stipends policy, uh, which shows you intricately what inmates make per day. The highest pay for an inmate per day is a dollar thirty-seven, and that's at the highest job. And I don't want everybody to get it twisted that the parameter is okay a dollar thirty-seven a day, even though that's not sufficient for any humane living condition. Still, at the highest pay, there's only about seven people out of twelve hundred people. I might be exaggerating. It might be about 20 people who make that much out of 1,200 people. The average person in prison makes 37 cents a day. Well, if you if you did the averages for the 1,200 people, and you got to remember that all 1,200 people don't have a job because there are not enough jobs to facilitate 1,200 people in a prison environment. So once again, an economic crisis, we don't have enough work for 1,200 men. So some men are left without work, without a means of taking care of themselves even in the limited capacity that the department offers. So you already create a poverty-stricken environment. But even with the pay at $0.37 cent a day, right? And you got to remember that this don't just include a person buying food. And you might say uh, that the, the, the state gives three meals a day and they put clothes on your back and they put a roof over your head so you don't have them bills to contend with so you don't need money. But any normal person, any person who's been living in the world, period, knows that you still need trivial things, toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, deodorant. You got to pay for your phone calls, combs, brush, like just everyday small things. We charge retail value, world right now, outside prison, world retail value for all things at a 10% markup. And the 10% markup is supposed to go to the inmate benefit fund to provide for things that the inmate might need institutional-wide as a whole. 
but the markup still exists. So we paying retail value as you pay out here right now, for example. Uh, deodorant by itself is $4 in prison, right? And if you make $0.37 cent a day, right, if you average it out a month, it's like a third of your income is going toward one deodorant, right? So you can see just in that dynamic by itself that monthly, a person can't sustain itself on the wage that's given right now in prison, especially in relation to the retail market for inmate. We still paying retail prices in the world, severely underpaid them. So, which creates a poverty-stricken environment. And we know just from studying history, anytime you add poverty to 1,200 people, right, it's, it's disastrous. It's inhumane. Either way it goes, it's going to create an inhumane environment. And this is supposed to be under controlled, structured, uh, government-ran institution, right, where it should be impossible for an environment that's inhumane to exist. But when you set up, when you systemically set up a system that doesn't take into account all of those things, right? And they just try to look at numbers cap from a capitalistic point of view. When they just try to look at numbers, how to save money, how to do this the least cost effective or whatever, right? And that's all they concentrating on. You took the human element out of it. You see what I'm saying? Because now it's just, it's just numbers. It's just numbers. The human element is took out and they under the belief that since we prisoners, it doesn't even matter. So it seems like the bloated prison system that is holding tens of thousands of people captive here in Michigan, as you say, is you have to get it down to the bare, you know, you say this often, 70 cent, 77 cents a day. Yeah, 77 cents a day to feed one minute. This is the, 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 the strategy that they came up with. Those who are trying to feed us and save money at the same time. They've whittled the cost of feeding a person down in prison to 77 cents a day statewide they've actually came up like it's it's some kind of weird twisted wicked <laughs> it's got to be some wicked people behind this who can come up with who can crunch the numbers enough who do the math enough to crunch the numbers to where they can come out economically stable enough to say to even figure out that they can keep you alive by by 77 cents a day how to keep a person alive feeding them with 77 cents a day right if you put the wage with to 77 cents a day right now, it still don't come up to enough for a fully grown person to take care of themselves in prison at retail value. Even if you put the 77 cent meal with it, even if you put the clothes, uh, a person, an inmate's clothes, I got the quartermaster prices for what they, what the pants, shoes, state pants, state shoes, state shirt costs. If you put all that together, Everything that the state offers you right now, if you put it all together, that the state necessarily is not paying for by themselves anyway. It's taxpayers paying for it either way it go. It's only private entities like the food administrators or whatever, the private food company that feeds us, that used to feed us, who whittle down the numbers, right? The state, we make our own clothes. The inmates make the clothes that we wear at the same kind of wage, right? But then they charge us for the same clothes that we make. A pair of state shoes, which is not even sufficient for a winter, is $23. You can get a decent pair of shoes to wear through the winter out here for $23. In prison, they give you some fake leather, like, bare necessity shoe for $23. And it's only one pair of shoes. It's only one shoe that you can get, so you can't, like, work out. You can't stay healthy. You can't work out or go to the gym in this shoe. You can only walk 
back and forth from a job to or wherever you walk into child or wherever you walk into in this shoe if you try to do anything else it's going to tear up and you can only get one new pair of shoes every 90 days every 90 days but if you played basketball one day in that shoe you would need another pair of shoes you would need another pair of shoes so you got to see that they they everything that they do for us they do at a bare minimum with the least cost to themselves but they charge us exponentially for all of these things so this is sort of uh ways in which this bloated prison system has to be able to maintain itself through in part the exploitation of a section of the labor population right a small a small section as you said and also charging those inside for all the services like you said right and so how does the 9-9 september 9 which is of course the anniversary of attica how does the tactic of the strike in a way interrupt that system, that reproduction of that system, and how how does it sit in crisis? This scheme that is set up, right? right. Why why this strike as a tactic? For me, to me, and I'm by no means am I expert on this, right? But to me, the strike is the most viable, the best option for a prison movement. First, for me, it keeps the inmates the safest, and when I say the safest, I mean from actual cruelty, from the cruelty of, of the police being able to come in and force. Right. Because that's a real live living thing. Right. That matters that, that 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 in any other situation where they allowed to come in and force, they can actually they can kill. Right. With no accountability. They can kill uh, anytime an ERT team has to be brought in the possibility for an inmate death. ERT is emergency response team. And these are guys who train in, in tactics and maneuvers in how to squash rebellion. So how to put inmates down. In a, in a volatile situation, in any kind of situation that they deem an inmate is a danger or a threat, they train in hand-to-hand combat, knee strikes, elbow strikes, weapons. They train in weapons, in all forms of weapons. And they train in strategy on how to infiltrate volatile situations. This is their whole purpose. But any incident where they called in, the probability of, 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 of someone getting hurt goes up. So the work stoppage strike. Fits best because they can't call the ERT team in first. That's first. That's number one. But it also causes the state to have to spend money. When the inmates refuse to work, when the inmates don't work, somebody has to do the work. There are elements in prison. Every job that has to be done is a necessary job. Whether it's a porter, a porter is a janitor, somebody who cleans up. Right? Uh, By policy, we have to live up under certain, uh, up to certain inspection codes. We can't live in filth and nastiness. So if an inmate refuses to do his porter job, the state has to provide someone to do that porter job. So that means they have to pay someone, not the wage that they pay an inmate. They have to bring in an outside person who they have to give at least the minimum wage, which is, and that's for every job that exists in prison. That's for every job that exists in prison. Because even at a work stoppage, because you only have a few inmates that have jobs, you still have the rest of the inmates who still have to be able to do what they what they allowed to do in prison, considering wreck or whatever it might be. The normal prison operation doesn't stop. It continues to move on. The only difference is there won't be inmates doing it. And if out of the 1,200 people, 600 of them have a job, those 600 jobs have to be replaced by somebody who's getting $13 an hour. And if you add in the element where working in a prison is a hazardous environment, the pay rate goes up. People who work in prison get paid more because they live, it's a security issue because they have the hazardous environment pay. So those people would actually have to get that pay as well. So we would cost the state 
so much more money with the work strippers. At the Ken Ross ride, if we'd have kept it up for more than one day, right? Right now they say it cost them $0.9 million. A million is good, but it could have been better. It could have been more. If we could have did the work stoppage, if the 9-10 incident hadn't happened, the work stoppage would have still been going on for a whole week or a week or whatever. It would have made more. It would have cost them more than a million dollars. Okay, so let's talk about that. So you're saying the strike both keeps people inside uh, relatively safe because it would not allow for an immediate repression. Mm -hmm. Though, as you know very well, the Department of Corrections considers a strike and a riot as the same ticket, right? As a riot or strike ticket. Mm -hmm. But let's say that it keeps people safer, and that's number one. And number two, it also increases costs for the state, right? Mm -hmm. As we said before, this is the state, a state in which it is trying to reduce the cost of prisons, right? Mm -hmm. And so when people don't go to work, it forces the state to have to, as they, as they did in Kinross, work for even more money, That's right? right? And so then there would be a, the necessity to extend the, the strike as much as possible. So let's talk specifically about Kinross. So the 9-9, September 9 strike did happen. Kitchen workers did not show up to work. What happened after? Okay, two things. First, I want to talk about the ticket, the right. The name of the ticket is incite to riot or strike. But the protocol for handling each one of these things is different. The protocol for handling a riot involves ERT. The protocol for handling the strike is totally different. ERT don't get called in unless you pick it in in front of somewhere where you're not supposed to be or something like that. But just I'm not going to work. Can't call the ERT team in because I don't, I don't, I'm not going to work. You can't justify doing it. Second, to the, to the later part of your inquiry. In order for this to be effective, it has to be allowed to maintain. It has to it has to have a, a period of time to where it cripples, not just the normal operations of the institution where it completely upsets the normal operations of an institution. It has to it has to last long enough to where they have to bring in outside workers, right? They have to bring in outside workers. The Kim Ross incident, it could have went a lot better. To me, like I had, and and this was amazing to me. I've never thought about it on a grand scale like that to be able to do a work stoppage or whatever. Uh, so when it was introduced, it was the perfect idea for the moment. Uh, and I've seen all the possible ways that it can cripple the institution or the state. It can cripple the state. For Kim Ross, it had a desired effect after one day. After one day, like the warden was pliable either way it go. He wanted it to end. One of the aspects about the Kim Ross riot that was unique. Usually, if you have one of the things that they did, because uh, I guess twenty hindsight is twenty twenty, and when you get to trying to cover up for what you've done, there's been a lot of things that have been said about the Ken Ross incident that are true to a degree, and some that aren't right. But one of the things that that happened during the Ken Ross riot that that was unique: nobody went to work and nobody got a ticket. Now, every day later on, they came back and they wrote guys tickets because they found that that's where they would be seen as at fault. One of the things about the system that goes on with the tickets and things like that, you catch a ticket, you go see a hearing investigator. You catch a ticket, you get reviewed on a ticket within 24 hours. They tell you you have a ticket. They have to mandatory. They have to let you know. You have to go up there and sign for a ticket within 24 hours. In that 24 hours, you when you go to sign for your ticket, it's called a ticket review. When you go sign for your ticket, they can offer you some days right there. They can offer you some days. You could take the days, plead guilty, and you leave guilty of the ticket or you go get your days. Or you can ask for a hearing. If you ask for a hearing, a due process protocol ensues. One of the part of the due process is you see a hearing investigator and you give the hearing investigator your statement or whatever, whatever, and you getting he's supposed to be there to help you collect relevant information to help you. But that's not really what he does, right? What he does is he hears your side of the story 
and then comes up with a defense against your story to give to the hearing officer. So when you go see the hearing officer, they've already heard your tale. They've already heard what your defense is going to be. So they could already plan to find you guilty. And if you go look at the, the percentages for people who get found guilty of a misconduct, and I don't care what kind of misconduct it is, you're going to find that it's like 7% of the people get found not guilty out of the multitudes of tickets that they write every day. 7% of the people, everybody gets found guilty or everybody takes the days that they give them, they offer them, because if you don't, you don't take the days that they give you at review, that they offer you at review, they double them when you go get hurt on the ticket. So it's coercion in that. But I said all that to show you the role of the hearing investigator. They heard from us. We all caught the ticket. Well, we all didn't go to work. I mean, we all caught the riot ticket. This was the next day on the 10th. No, on the 11th, we all caught the riot ticket. They brought us because they rolled us out, took us out. But I'm, I'm skipping ahead just to show you one facet of this and show you how they came up with writing people tickets who didn't go to work after instead of during, right? And this is where they tried to cover themselves. After the whole situation and we were all moved to different facilities or whatever, we caught the tickets. They brought us the tickets. We went to see the hearing investigator. In our defenses, we wrote, hey, we had a work stoppage. Nobody got a ticket. Right. This wasn't supposed to happen. The warden caused this by calling in the ERT team. We were all calm. They read all of those. Now, you got to remember, like 400 people caught those tickets. So 400 people responses got the hearing investigator at different facilities, got 400 uh, defenses. But 400, they got 400 pages worth of in information about what our defense was going to be. And in there, it said that we had caught we had not went to work. We had did a work stoppage and didn't catch tickets. So from them reading that, they called back and said to the warden and say, man, they got everybody in here saying that they didn't catch a ticket when the work stoppage happened. You at fault for that. Why, why wouldn't you have wrote them tickets? It empowered them. It gave them calls. Right. So they came back later on and wrote tickets. I'm just showing you a, a facet of how the MDOC worked to cover itself and how it's so geared so much against the inmates and another reason why we rebel. Why we rebel? Because it's 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 a system, it's an inhumane system that covers itself. So so part of disrupting uh that system is through these these strikes, which as you said, is only after people had already been crushed, right, by the emergency response team that the tickets were written up. So there's a discussion right now about what what tactics would uh make crumble uh, this state, right? And there's maybe multiple tactics. Right. One of which is the strike, as you said. But and you and you kind of emphasize the fact that a strike cannot be as easily squashed. That's right. Right. As as let's say a riot or a more direct confrontation. One story that Fred uh, Williams, who is was at Kinross at the time mm -hmm. and is in the documentary, which I think you heard, he says that as the strike had turned into a riot on September 10th, right? He asked a question. What would have happened if there would have been other prisons that had gone on strike and potentially these had also turned into riots? There would not have been enough emergency response teams to respond to this crisis, right? So what about that aspect as well? Well, uh, we were in communication with other prisons, try to get as much prisoners, is try to get as many prisons to cooperate as possible. What we have to remember in that dynamic is this. Just, I mean, the system been in Michigan, it's been set up for years, right? And the state, like, they done figured some things out, right, on how to run prisons and 
and how to squash rebellions long before they start. And uh, they use different tactics, ride influential people out, crush. The same thing with slavery. If you ever read uh, the Willie Lynch syndrome, The Making of a Slave, they kind of use those tactics. We're going to crush an inmate, any inmate who does try to rebel at certain prisons or at prisons, period. We're gonna come together and we're gonna we're gonna treat him so bad, we're gonna crush him so bad in front of everybody else. Maybe not physically, but administratively. We're gonna crush him so bad we're gonna send him to Max for ten years or whatever. Right? We're gonna put him in a hole and keep him in a hole for a long time or whatever. They use these kind of tactics of crushing inmates the same thing that they used in the Willie Lynch syndrome when they brought one slave out and, and ripped him apart, tied him to four horses and drove off in different directions and ripped him apart in front of all the other slaves. It, it put fear into the other slaves to make them not want to do whatever it was that that slave did to cause that, right? Same thing with this, right? They Administratively, they crush one inmate so bad or at, at different institutions. Now, within the last 20 years, maybe, the MDOC done really, really figured out a way to get its grips in the majority of its prisons. Kim Ross was the last vestige of, of, of old school jailing where inmates still ran the prison. Which again is why I say it's the perfect storm. But at the majority of prisons, they have their grips in, and uh, a lot of the inmates operate off fear, right? They're just keeping their heads down, trying to get by, or whatever, because really they don't see daylight at the end of the tunnel for any kind of activism because it doesn't exist to them, right? Uh, they don't even know that this kind of stuff exists out out here, right? That they have this kind of support and kind of help out there, and that's one of the fastest I think we need to expound upon too, but at another time, right? It's a lot of this stuff we're going to do at another time. But we reached out to other prisons to try to get them to do it. The the, the vibe of the prison or the, or the mind state of the prisoners in the majority wasn't ready to do it. But if we could have got two more prisons to do it, three more prisons to do it, that would have been an epidemic in Michigan. I believe it would have swept like wildfire first. If we could have got two more prisons to do it, one more prison to do it, I believe they would have seen it. Other prisoners would have seen it. That's another tactic they use. They cut off the TVs, the channels, the local channels that report news, that report if there's a riot or a rebellion going on at a prison. They'll block it from the TVs to try to keep it down. But as you can see, we got cell phones and stuff like that. So we in constant communication with other inmates. But if we could have got three or four, I believe it would have swept like wildfire. I would have believed we'd have ended up with like 20 or 30. And there would have been no way possible they would have been able to squash it. They wouldn't have been able to send us anywhere because all the other prisons would have been involved in it too. You see what I'm saying? So they would have had to deal with the same amount of inmates and because that's one of the tactics they use to try to squash these rebellions. They'll ride the influential inmates out. But if you got 30 prisons from Michigan, I believe, if you got 15 of those that, that, that incite, right, or riot, or strike, right, or just strike, they can't really do anything. And it cripples them to the point where it becomes an emergency situation. So if you want to shut down some stuff or call national attention to these things and get these things looked at, if you get 15 prisons to strike, right, it'll shut Michigan down. Not only will it shut the carceral society down uh, or prison or MDOCs down, it'll cripple Michigan because it'll become an epidemic in Michigan because prisons affect so much of what's going on. There won't be a governor alive who won't give attention to whatever it is we're talking about if 15 prisons shut down in Michigan or anywhere. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to listen to more on the Kinross Uprising, be sure to check out our audio documentary series entitled Specters of Attica, 
on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Alejo Stark, and Cape Syed. Original music by Bad Infinity. <laughs>